You may not realize it, but after more than two decades of America's war on terror, there's still a major threat out there here in the homeland and around the world from Islamic jihadists. Terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS are still operating with impunity in a number of theaters, and state sponsors of terror like Iran stand committed to acquiring nuclear weapons. On this special edition of Hold the Line, we'll dive into the latest in America's fight against radical Islam around the world, against terrorism on the international side, and how are we still fighting it? Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. So let's just take a quick moment of review, shall we? There are places in the world still where there are major threats from Islamic fundamentalist terrorists. There are still countries where terrorist groups are operating, and there are still major concerns out there about what the future will hold if these groups are able to be resurgent, if they're able to make some kind of comeback. We want to break down for you right now what those theaters of warfare look like currently and where they could be going in the future in what was known as the global war on terror under the Bush administration and has since turned into, well, a series of seemingly disconnected uh, stability and security operations, but there's certainly a thread that runs between all of them. Let's start with Afghanistan. Back in August of 2021, Biden was saying there's more of a threat from Syria and Africa than from Afghanistan. Watch this. Most intelligence analysis has predicted that al-Qaeda would come back 18 to 24 months after a withdrawal of American troops. Is that analysis now being revised? Could it be sooner? It could be, but George, look, here's the deal. Al-Qaeda, ISIS, they metastasize. There's a significantly greater threat to the United States from Syria. There's a significant greater threat from East Africa. There's significant greater threat to other places in the world than it is from the mountains of Afghanistan. And we have maintained the ability to have an over-the-horizon capability to take them out. Now, what he's saying there is right now, certainly, arguably, and, and likely to be true, but is that going to remain the case? The Taliban now runs Afghanistan. They are the government of Afghanistan. And there are members of the Taliban regime who are known international jihadist terrorists. So can we count on the Taliban to continue to be a place that is not friendly to U.S. interests around the world, uh, but actually refuses to become a platform for the jihad? That's the hope of people like Antony Blinken, uh, U.S. Secretary of State. Here he is again in August of last year saying they're not going to allow, the Taliban's not going to allow terrorism within their borders. Really? You don't think that Afghanistan now is going to become a hotbed of, of terrorism? Jake, we have uh, tremendously more capacity than we had before 9-11 when it comes uh, to counterterrorism. In places around the world where we don't have forces on the ground, in Yemen, uh, in parts of, uh, of Africa, in parts of Syria, we're able to deal with any potential terrorist threat uh, to our country. And we're doing that every single day. We're going to retain uh, in, uh, in the region the over-the-horizon capacity, as we, as we call it. I can't tell you what, uh, what the Taliban is going to do. But again, in their self-interest, uh, allowing a repeat of what happened before 9-11, which is a terrorist group to reemerge in Afghanistan that has designs on the United States, well, they know what happened last time. So I don't think it's in their self-interest to allow that to happen again. Now, are they 
rational actors the way that we would think they would be. If they believe in a global jihad, do they care if there will be a major U.S. counterstrike, if they can become, if the Taliban can become a homeland, if you will, for attacks on the U.S. homeland by terrorist entities like the Islamic State, like al-Qaeda, and these other groups. Biden said earlier that there's been a metastasizing effect of jihadist terrorism and the terrorist groups that will try to conduct attacks against the U.S. and our allies, and of course, Uh, Muslims within many of these countries who by no means share any of the ideology of the extremists but are often the key targets, uh, primary targets of these attacks, Uh, what exactly should we make of the fact that there's been a metastasizing effect? There's Boko Haram in Nigeria, there's Al-Shabaab in Somalia. These entities continue to pose threats in the region. But what about some of the larger players in the Middle East? talking about uh, countries like what's going on right now in Syria, where there's still an Islamic State presence. In fact, there was recently a raid on somebody who was supposed to be, we're told by U.S. authorities, the primary leader of the Islamic State. What do we make of that? What happens if ISIS continues to grow? Can there be a bounce-back effect in Syria, in Afghanistan. What about Iran as a primary state sponsor of terror on the world stage in a better position now than they were under the four years of the Trump administration? What happens if they continue to fund terrorist groups throughout the Middle East? Could we be hit by another major attack? Are we doing enough to stop it? One thing that we know for sure from the Biden regime is that they're focused on a very different terror threat right now Here's the president back in October of 2021 saying, the real threat we face from terror is, you guessed it, white supremacy. I've said it before, and all my colleagues here know it. According to the United States intelligence community, domestic terrorism from white supremacists is the most lethal terrorist threat in the homeland. To that end, our administration is carrying out the first ever comprehensive effort to tackle the threat passed by domestic, posed by domestic terrorism, including white supremacy. White supremacy, yeah. That's that's the real terror threat. Let's look at what's going on around the world right now. Some of the hotbeds of terrorism that continue to be destabilizing, threatening forces to this day in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Iran. Let's dive into this together and have a real understanding after this special edition of Hold the Line, of what those terror threats look like now, what they could become in the future, and what we should be doing to stop them. That's all coming up. Stay with us. On October 7, 2001, America officially launched Operation Enduring Freedom, invading the nation of Afghanistan. The operation was the first major offensive in the war on terror intended to root out the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks and topple the Taliban government, which had harbored them for several years. Fast forward 20 years, it seems like we're right back where we started. The Taliban is once again in charge in Afghanistan, turning the nation into a potential breeding ground for a new generation of radical Islamic terror. So what are, what are America's next steps when it comes to combating terrorism in Afghanistan? Joining me now to give his insight, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Bill Rogiel. Bill, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Buck. Always a pleasure. 
Are we already seeing evidence that Afghanistan is being used at all as a platform for regional and even global jihadist terror, or where do we stand? Well, right now, I think what we're seeing is the Taliban consolidating its control of Afghanistan and groups like Al-Qaeda and there are a host of other terror groups, most of them regional terror groups, groups, some Pakistani, some Central Asian, they're finding their place in Afghanistan. They're helping the Taliban consolidate its gains. It would make sense for these groups to keep low in the short term to not put additional pressure on the Pakistan on the I'm sorry, the uh, Afghan Taliban. The Afghan Taliban is supported by the Pakistani state. So oftentimes they're indistinguishable. Uh, so I think that's what we're seeing here. They're they're consolidating their gains. They're, they're doing things under the covers to in order to keep uh, the, the pressure off the Taliban just because we're not seeing um, direct threats uh, emanating from Afghanistan at this moment doesn't mean that these groups aren't plotting and organizing for future attacks. These are groups, remember, they spent 20 years supporting the Taliban's insurgency against the U.S. and the Afghan government. These, these are the patient organization. I always go back to um, when, after the first bombing of the uh, World Trade Center, when the FBI flew over one of the captives, they they Took the, they went past the World Trade Center when it was still standing and said to him, it was Ramzi Youssef, they said, look, those buildings are still standing. And, and the anecdote goes, says, he responded, yeah, but we'll try again and they'll come down. And six years after, the, um, those buildings came down. So this is this this Al-Qaeda thing, it thinks on a timeline of decades and generations. That's why the threat doesn't go away just because one thing changes quickly. And the US operates, unfortunately, in terms of congressional and presidential election cycles. And it is very difficult, if not impossible, to effectively battle a group like Al Qaeda when you are when you have such short uh, uh, horizons. What is the makeup of the new Taliban government, you think? Tell us about how they're likely, I mean, especially when you start to expand it out to a longer timeline, as you just discussed with us, Bill, the new Taliban government over the long haul is going to approach jihadists on their soil, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, et cetera, in what way? What do you think? Oh, the new Taliban government is going to pretend that it's already doing this. It's uh, the United Nations sanctioned the monitoring team just issued a report noting that that Al Qaeda and other groups are operating inside of Afghanistan, albeit in a low key manner. And the Taliban flat out denied this. That's what exactly what I expect the Taliban to do while in the background supporting these groups. The, uh, you ask about the makeup, and that's an essential question. There's a lot of Taliban subgroups or factions that support Al-Qaeda. The most famous, the most well-known is the Haqqani family. They're known as the Haqqani Network. Its leader, its, uh, its boss is Sirajuddin Haqqani. The United Nations sanctions and monitoring team last year called him a member of Al-Qaeda. So he's the, he's the deputy emir of the Taliban or deputy leader, as well as the interior minister for the Taliban, arguably the most powerful position within the Taliban's government. It appoints 
politically. It appoints governors. It runs the internal security inside of Afghanistan. Sarajuddin Haqqani, the U.S. hunted him for years and failed to kill or capture him. Uh, he's in bed with al-Qaeda. He's a member, he's a leader within al-Qaeda, and he's a top Taliban leader. You don't have to look any further than him, although there are others within the Taliban's government holding senior positions with direct ties to al-Qaeda. I also wanted your assessment, Bill, of the recent Associated Press uh, reporting that, according to, the Pentagon, now according to the Pentagon's analysis, that attack that killed 13 U.S. service members in Afghanistan during the withdrawal was, uh, quote, not preventable. Here's from the report itself, or from the, uh, the press report, I should say. The military investigation into the deadly attack during the Afghanistan evacuation has concluded that a suicide bomber carrying 20 pounds of explosives packed with ball bearings acted alone. The deaths of more than 170 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members were not, in fact, preventable. What do you make of that? Yeah, I, I completely disagree. The chaotic nature of the U.S. withdrawal and the, evacu the chaotic nature of that evacuation, it didn't have to be that way, Buck. It did, the U.S. did not have to abandon its Afghan partners. It did not have to abandon Bagram, Bagram Air Base and the prison that held the suicide bomber, who just uh, 13 days before that attack, um, he was in a prison. The Taliban, uh, when they took control of Bagram, released those prisoners, and then he comes out and detonates a, a, a that suicide vest that he used was quite complex. He had to have connections in order to execute that attack. If the U.S. had thought of more clearly about the implications of its withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Biden administration wasn't in such a, a hurry rush to get out of Afghanistan, that attack may not have happened. Um, conducting an evacuation in a city of 4.5 million people who were desperate to flee from the Taliban. The airport was inside the city, the center, from the city center to the gate of the airport. It's about three, uh, I think it's somewhere between three and five kilometers or about two miles. Um, we're not talking about a, a, an airport that is 10, 15 miles outside the city. That airport is inside the city and the nature of that evacuation, how that evacuation was executed. You know, it, to me, it was unsurprising that an attack occurred like that, like that occurred. But to me, that was preventable. What, in your mind, are the indicators we have to look for that Afghanistan is becoming? I mean, in the early stage indicators, right? I mean, you know, the uh, an attack being perpetrated, obviously, but then it's too late. Then we know that if that was uh, prepped for and conducted with assistance from uh, either the Afghan government or just the, essentially the complicity of the Afghan government with who they're allowing to operate on their soil, then we'll know. But what can we look for in the early stages for this is going bad in Afghanistan like it did before we got hit on 9-11? It's going to be very difficult. In mid-December, General McKenzie, the commander of CENTCOM, estimated that the U.S. military and intelligence services can only see about 1% to 2% um, of what it used to be able to see enough inside of Afghanistan. There's no national directorate of security. That was the Afghan intelligence service. There's no Afghan military or police or, um, or an embassy or anyone to really provide us intelligence. And if he said one to 2%, that's the military is always going to give you a rosy assessment. That would put that number at 0.5 to 1%. So we're, we're basically blind in Afghanistan right now we, from a national security perspective. Exactly. But what we could possibly detect, to answer your question, is we could see key al-Qaeda leaders, 
um, perhaps the the man uh, deemed to uh, succeed Ayman al-Zawahiri if he dies either in a raid or just of old age, which is more likely since we have very little ability to look into Afghanistan and Pakistan. If he and others start traveling to Afghanistan, and I suspect that this will happen, the United Nations sanctioning and monitoring report uh, discusses this a little bit. Um, I think that is a key indicator that al-Qaeda is really consolidating and plotting its next stage of attacks against us. We'll have to keep an eye on it, Bill. Always appreciate you being with us. Thanks for having me, Buck. Always a pleasure. A recent strike by U.S. forces eliminated the head of the Islamic State in Syria. Will the loss of their leader have any effect on the terrorist group going forward? When we come back, America First Policy Institute Stephen Yates stops by to analyze. Islamic State is now leaderless, but who's to say how long that will last for? Al-Qurayshi assumed the leadership role after Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi blew himself up as U.S. troops were closing in on him. The strike came as reverberations were still being felt from an ISIS prison break attempt in Syria that lasted multiple days and ended on January 31st. Coordinated attack and subsequent battle with Syrian forces had experts surprised by their capabilities, referring to the prison raid as a big wake-up call. Battle is the largest attack launched by ISIS and a demonstrated the group's very slow but very methodical recovery. What will the future hold for the war on terror? Let's uh, talk to senior fellow at the America First Policy Institute and former Deputy National Security Advisor Steve Yates. Steve, good to see you. Thank you, Buck. Great to be with you. So not a lot of folks heard about this. What kind of concerns does this jailbreak, ISIS jailbreak raise? And what does this assault symbolize in terms of where the region, where Syria, Iraq could be going? Well, I think there are a lot of concerning echoes of the narrative that we saw coming out of Afghanistan uh, as I think the wheels came off of any semblance of planning uh, and the, the risk you see of uh, some kind of an escape and people returning to the battle space. I think it's also jarring to a lot of Americans that haven't really heard about this topic for ages. They just drown in other messaging. We don't have national leaders talking about counterterrorism very much. We don't really have much talk about Iraq and Syria. Uh, under the Trump administration, there uh, wasn't sort of the George W. Bush narrative of the global war on terrorism, but the Trump administration definitely would strike from occasion and strike hard, and degrading to the point of eliminating the ISIS threat was a priority that was demonstrated. And so this creeping back to life of this toxic organism we know as ISIS and that terrorist network is deeply troubling, and the jailbreak is just one of many signals of concern. I mean, much like this attempted uh, Hasaka prison break, should people expect there are going to be other major operations like this coming from the ISIS group, the former Islamic State uh, group in the future? I do think that. I mean, that's one of the concerns about provocative weakness out of Afghanistan. It's also a concern about just general weakness seen in the international stage and the lack of real strategy, a military that we have that's talking about domestic political issues, woke political issues, uh, and to the harder core enemies of America, that just seems like a green light of these guys are weak, distracted, and so we should go. And they certainly don't seem to feel like the pressure is on them. So I'm very concerned that this could be destabilizing beyond this isolated incident. 
Do we have any sense of what the state of play is right now in Syria more broadly? It seems like the Assad regime was able to hold on, right? So the Assad regime is still in place. Uh, the Islamic State was kicked out of Raqqa by a Kurdish U.S.-backed force. There, what, what is the on-the-ground reality, though, right now? I mean, who's in charge? Where? Do we still have some U.S. troops in harm's way in Syria? What do we know about the battle space that is the former Islamic State territory and Syria? Uh, the sense that I have is that we still do have troops in theater uh, and that, there, of course, on any given day, there's the risk of a bad operation. Uh, you know, we, we have in the recent past learned that sometimes uh, there can be operations sent and in fact, they don't hit the target, we're told, and it can be a disaster all the way around. So uh, we have what had been advisors, uh, skinny down kind of presence there, but we have had very rocky relations with Turkey, which plays a significant role. Uh, the Kurdish population crosses borders, uh, and it, it is a, it's a very significant strategic issue that hasn't been addressed very, very clearly. And I, it's, it's been forever since we've heard any serious leader in the United States talk about our dealings with the government in Iraq, which has uh, sadly lurched in the direction of being more open to influence from Iran. And that is a very enabling environment for ISIS to come back to life and spread. I mean, we, we don't hear much, to your point, Stephen, about Iraq in the media at all anymore. Is it pretty stable when it comes to the war on terror component? Is there ISIS activity going on there? I mean, it, what, what, is, what is the state of play in Iraq right now, a country where obviously we spent a lot of military uh, resources and blood and treasure for a long time. What's going on? Well, certainly compared to the investment in blood and treasure, as you refer to, we are not getting the bang for the buck that we should have gotten out of that level of sacrifice and effort. Uh, the What I hear from people who track this very, very closely is that this, this government is not a strong government, not an effective government in lead, dealing for its people, uh, that, that as, I, as I mentioned a moment ago, they're very, very concerned about its openness and influence from Iran. Uh, and so... Kind of civil strife, the Sunni-Shia divide uh, commentary we had from times past, sounds to me like it is on the verge of coming back to central reality for Iraq. And it turns out that when you break apart countries and they have weak governments, that they're almost persistently in a state of possible disarray or disintegration. I still think there's an open question about whether the territory known as Iraq holds together over the years ahead, if not decades ahead. What do you think the Biden administration vision for anti-ISIS operations looks like? Are they paying attention to this specifically in the theater of Iraq and Af I mean uh, uh, Iraq and Syria and uh, and the surrounding areas? Well, there's uh, there's a few elements of it that I find very very disturbing. Uh, they uh, they really have emphasized this over the horizon capability in the context of the the departure, the the very ignominious, shameful departure from uh, Afghanistan. And when you apply that same rationale, which is the only rationale we have to go by, I mean, it's shameful that there is really almost no discourse out of the administration. The committees of jurisdiction are not pressing the administration to articulate these kinds of things. It's 
It's as if the sort of establishment leaders in Washington want a memory hole, the loss of trillions of dollars, many American lives, not to mention allied lives, because this is a broken country that likely is going to continue to have big problems. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I just I don't hear very much about what their strategy is going to be, and so I don't think that we're collaborating to help the Iraqis to be stronger to be able to take care of themselves. It's not clear whether we have dis we sort of distinguished between which Iraqis. Obviously, if there are pro-Tehran or Tehran-influenced Iraqis, uh, these are the people that were killing Americans during uh, during the war, uh, and uh, and basically are no foundation on which to build a stable future. So I, I just think that we don't hear much. We know what President Joe Biden's theory was. He jumped on board some 10 plus years ago with a theory of it breaking apart into different countries, and there was really little we could do. And so I strongly suspect his mind hasn't moved much beyond that level of thought since. Steve. Always good to see you. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Steve Yates will join us again later in the hour, but when we come back, the world's biggest state sponsor of terror continues its efforts to acquire nuclear weapons as the Biden administration shows impotence on the world stage. We return. The Heritage Foundation's own Jim Carafano joins us to discuss the threat that Iran plays as a major platform for terrorism. Stay with us. During his campaign for president, Joe Biden criticized then-President Donald Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and promised to reverse it. Since his inauguration, Biden has laid the groundwork for an even worse deal that would pour billions of dollars into Iran's terror infrastructure and leave the regime on the threshold of attaining nuclear weapons. President Biden made a bet that abandoning maximum pressure in favor of maximum deterrence would somehow convince the world's leading state sponsor of terror to compromise. Doesn't seem to be working out that way. So what exactly are we doing to stop the Iranian terror machine? Let's talk to James Carafano, vice president of the Heritage Foundation, uh, about just that. James, always good to see you. Yeah, it's going to be the shortest conversation because the answer to the question is nothing. I mean, you know, literally, they, they pretended like the last four years didn't happen, and they went right back to the Obama playbook, which is they're trying to bribe Iran into acting respectively, even though we know that it doesn't work. And when you give them money and resources, they actually use that money and resources to be more dangerous. So we're facing a situation here where the Biden team came in saying they were gonna give us a longer, stronger deal. And now they're gonna give us a deal which is so weak that even the administration has publicly admitted they cannot do a deal that can keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, which raises the question, of, well, what are we doing here? Right. What's the point of the deal? Can, can you, can Jim, but, but can you put into context for everybody, uh, give some background? Because, you know, we, we think of, you know, people talk about Afghanistan as a place where terrorism was flourishing. And by the way, May, again, something we're talking about during the special. But Iran, as many have pointed out, is, is the greatest state sponsor of terror, has been a platform for terrorist uh, actions and support for a long time. Can you just when people say Iran is a state sponsor of terror, what does that mean? Who are they Who are they sponsoring? Who are they helping? How are they a problem? So let's just offer a couple of examples. So there's a civil war in Yemen. Uh, the rebels are called the Houthis. The Iranians are not only giving them weapons and sponsoring them and encouraging them to harbor terrorists and everything else, but they're actually directing them 
to attack Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates and other countries in the region. So they're actually directing war against other countries in the region through the Houthis. That's one. Um, they're an active supporter of Hamas and Hezbollah, and they actually fund them to attack Israel, which of course is deeply destabilizing to the US and US interests. They're the number one source of instability in Iraq. You know, Iraq has all the makings of a flourishing, uh, successful country, oil industry, good human capital, lots of resources, great geostrategic position. But the, the, the Iranians have been basically undermining the country through the support of, of the militias, which they use to attack everybody that, that doesn't support them. Um, in Syria, they, they are the principal reason why Assad is still in power. And of course, his record on genocide is horrible. And, and keeping Assad in power and keeping that powder cake, that creates space for more terrorists, which also means uh, you know, we have a resurgent ISIS threat in, in Syria. So it's very, very difficult to look. You know, we, can, we can talk badly about, well, these countries support the Muslim Brotherhood and, and these countries, but Iran actively engages, supports terrorists across the spectrum, even ones that they don't agree with because they hurt other people. And it's not just in the greater Middle East. They're also active in Latin America, supporting regimes like Venezuela, uh, which of course deeply are deeply destabilizing in the regime, supporting Hezbollah operations in, in, uh, in Latin America, which again are destabilizing. So, you know, it, they're, the, they're actually of the three, Russia, China, Iran. Iran is the most aggressive and the most reckless and the most quick to use instruments would actually kill people every day. So now let's combine these two trains of thought for a moment here, Jim. You just said that the Biden regime has already pretty much admitted, or within the regime internally, there's some folks who live somewhat in reality, I guess. They know that this new deal that they want to re-enter or you know, they, they want to re-up some kind of a deal with Iran would not prevent the Iranians from going nuclear. Given the role that Iran plays in state sponsor of terror, in the global jihad, and just in, in mass destabilization, wherever they can accomplish that. What does that all look like if Iran says, oh, now we've got nukes? Well, it makes them more untouchable. It makes them countries less likely to want to pressure them to behave responsibly. Um, you know, we've seen this with, with, with North Korea, which is exactly the model that they want to follow is, you know, once we get a nuclear weapon, it doesn't matter how mean we are, people will back off and they will, they will leave us alone. And that, and that just assumes they're not going to actually aggressively use nuclear weapons, which, which, which nascent nuclear powers often do is threaten the use of nuclear weapons and trigger wars as a result of that. So it's creating an enormously dangerous and, and, and destabilizing situation. I think we ought to be clear here. There was never, ever, ever a diplomatic way to keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. There was no deal that any president could do that would prevent Iran from going nuclear if it wanted to. And you know, people think of the Iran nuclear program like it's some kind of conveyor belt, and we do diplomacy or whatever, and it slows it down, and then we back off. And it's the reality is, is Iran has and has all the capabilities to be a nuclear power any day they want. What will determine their decision is when they see it in their interest either to be a declared or de facto nuclear power. And it's all the other stuff that affects their calculus. When they feel threatened, they're actually less likely to make that step because it's entirely risky because we know for a fact that the day they get close to actually being a declared nuclear power, Israel will attack them. 
it, and it doesn't matter who's in charge in the Israeli government, they will attack Iran. And then the question is, what does Iran do? And does that lead to a regional war? This is incredibly dangerous. And, and the, what the Biden administration is offered is nothing. It's like all they've done is gone to the addict and offered them free method, you know, free drugs and, and crack. Can, can I have you I respond mean, to the to the um, by the way, they do, all, you know, they're, they're, if you look at their drug policies lately, you can see that their idea is basically to give people who are addicts drugs and, you know, clean needles and, and uh, pipes. But anyway, um, here's Jen Psaki. This is back on January 12th of this year slamming the Trump administration over what they did with Iran. I wanted to have you explain and tell everybody what's true, what's not about this. Play it. Most importantly, none of the things we're looking at now, uh, Iran's increased capability and capacity, uh, their aggressive actions that they have taken through proxy wars around the world would be happening if the former president had not recklessly pulled out of the nuclear deal with no thought as to what might come next. And if you look at that step and the impact of that, uh, the, the fact that the former president ripped at the nuclear deal uh, meant that Iran's nuclear program was no longer in a box, no longer had the most robust inspection regime ever negotiated, no longer had the tight restrictions on nuclear activity. What do you say to that, Jim? Well, it's just packed full of lies. You know, first of all, um, all of their enrichment act, uh, capacity has, has been built since Joe Biden has come into office. They were, they were actually abiding more, even after the U.S. pulled out of the deal, they were actually abiding more by the inspection regime under Trump than they were under Biden. Uh, and the, the resurgence in uh, regional uh, terrorist activity has been all under Biden. So the first thing the Biden guys did when they came in is they, they, they declared the Houthis were not a, a terrorist group. And ever since then, all the Houthis have been doing are things that would get any, anybody in the world classified as a terrorist group. Um, Hamas went to war with Israel after Biden came into office. So this notion that somehow that it was Trump that unleashed, the reality is, is the Iranians under Trump found themselves in a very small box. And what was constraining them was not the Iran deal. It was they had no money. They, they, were, they couldn't fund their um, surrogates. Um, the U.S.-Israeli alliance was incredibly powerful and resilient. And that was a real problem. The Abraham Accords, they were, the U.S. was lining up all the other countries against them. They, they had almost no money. They had no exports. There was very, very little they could do. And going nuclear in that environment actually would put their entire regime at risk, and they knew that. And so they were incredibly risk-averse. When the day Joe Biden came into office, they just stopped being risk-averse. And everything they saw from him, running away in Afghanistan, um, siding with the Cuban regime in, 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 uh, in, in protests in Cuba, siding with the Venezuelan, being weak against the Chinese. Everything they have done has signaled that they don't really want to deal with this. And, and the Iranians have built them. The Iranians have made more and more demands and been less and less willing. And look, yeah. this is the way people are. It's like when you give them something for nothing, they go, okay, obviously I'm not asking for enough yeah. and they want more. They're going to keep running the table on this Biden White House. That's for sure. Jim, always good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's an important issue. Glad you're talking about it. Following the downfall of Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi in 2011, the North African nation became a hotbed of jihadist activity. When we come back, we'll talk to Stephen Yates of the American First Policy Institute again to give us an update on the situation. Stay right with us.
In October of 2011, former Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi was captured and killed, marking the end of a months-long civil war that had seen his regime fall from power. Ten years later, the nation remains unstable with an interim government that remains fractured along ethnic and ideological lines. The chaos has led to a rise in terrorism in the nation, which includes a branch of ISIS that was responsible for an attack that killed three security personnel in late January of this year. So what's being done to contain the threat of Islamic terrorism in Libya? Learning once again, a senior fellow at the America First Policy Institute and former Deputy National Security Advisor, Stephen Yates. Stephen, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Buck. Just a bit of review for everybody, because we recall that this was a decision made by the Obama-Hillary uh, State Department to go into Libya in some capacity, backing European countries that also went into Libya with a military intervention. Uh, Hillary pretty infamously said, you know, we came, we saw he died, something like that. What, what led up to this? I mean, how did we get into a place where the Western nations that, that got involved here toppled Gaddafi and then kind of just let the chips fall where they did? Well, I think, Buck, there are a couple of different things that led to, uh, I think, uh, a very poorly managed intervention, of course, with uh, absolute tragic results, as you recounted, with uh, what I think most people will remember as the Benghazi travesty. Uh, some of the people that were involved in the Obama-Biden administration intervention and also the public manipulation of that, uh, that intervention, uh, Susan Rice and Victoria Nuland and others, uh, they, they were involved in the attribution of some kind of never heard of video. Uh, this was in the context of the Eric Spring kind of turmoil. Uh, and then, of course, Susan Rice famously trying to engage in, I think, A-plus Communist Party of China revisionism on the national airwaves in terms of what the real cause of that uh, that turmoil was. Probably some of the stink of that experience is a profound deterrence for people in the new administration that are from the old administration to go back and really publicly have to be associated with this issue set again. Uh, in the intervening years, uh, yes, there was an intervention. NATO was uh, was involved in the discussions. France and Italy in particular uh, are geographically proximate. Uh, but the follow through after the fall of Gaddafi was terrible. A lot of the regional terrorist groups that sort of took it in the teeth early on uh, basically moved to the near abroad in North Africa and other areas and crept back in because, uh, like some other areas, we had a very weak government put in place. Endemic corruption didn't exactly get exhausted from the system. And the United States went with its tail behind its between its legs because of the public relations disaster. And so whatever came of the Arab Spring political movement and this intervention to try to take out a dictator uh, and to guide this region in a fundamentally different and more humane direction, absolutely zero follow through. Uh, and the, I think the pieces are now being left. Uh, and, and frankly, our allies haven't distinguished themselves either. It's not as if Europe has stepped up to this void uh, to help its neighbor that is uh, basically closer to them than a lot of other parts of Europe are. So what does the situation on the ground from, a, from a, just a, a counterterrorism perspective, the degree we can get some sense of this, what does it look like right now in Libya at one point there were videos circulating, uh, this was after Gaddafi fell, of ISIS faction executing people, Christians, I believe it was, 
uh, on the beach, uh, on video, making these, uh, these terrible uh, propaganda statements and propaganda videos of executions. So it's not, that's, doesn't, that's not going on right now, but are there, is there an ISIS franchise operating in Libya? Is this a, a place that has to be high on the, uh, on the radar, so to speak, of possible terror platforms going forward? Yeah, well, they, I, I think you're correct that they, we haven't seen the uh, evidence that was extremely horrifying during that earlier period, but it remains a very permissive environment. Uh, the geographic proximity to a lot of European capitals, uh, the, the, the basing of American forces within that near abroad, uh, these are all rich targets. And I think that so that that could, the conducive environment for regrouping, uh, probably playing in illicit financial networks, illicit arms networks is very, very uh, troubling. And I just don't think that the state of Libya has the capacity to take this on. And as I mentioned, I think the absence of very near allies is, uh, I think, catastrophic to trying to have a real counterterrorism strategy there. So uh, I wish there were better news on this front, but the global war on terror, I think, has clearly left this geography behind. Yeah, I just want to know how you would assess. I mean, you were there for the Bush administration. You remember what it was like in the early days of what we called the GWAT, the global war on terror. Right. Did we win or was it just in remission or what? I think we uh, we definitely dealt those ideologies and and uh, capabilities some severe blows. Uh, we made some pretty significant errors in the handling of two major wars that uh, allowed some of the remnants to scatter and rebuild. Uh, we've completely lost the political warfare or ideological component of this, which is actually essential if we're going to disaggregate and weaken what fuels these movements. Uh, we've we failed to deal with the same sanctuary states. And so uh, a number of those key elements that, that I think the Bush administration aspired to address effectively clearly are not even in the discourse, much less on display now. Stephen Yates, good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining. My pleasure. Thank you, Buck. All right, that's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. I'd like to thank my guests, Bill Roggio, Jim Carafano, and Steve Yates for sharing their expertise on national security matters with us. Have a great night. As always, shields high.